Welcome to the Resilience Rising podcast with me, your host, Jen Scottney. With the help of my guests, we will be getting curious about what resilience is, how we develop it, and the times we've used it. This podcast is here to explore all things resilience. Today, I'm talking to Tess Elias. Tess spent the best part of a decade working in humanitarian emergency responses, both in refugee settings and in conflict situations, ranging from Afghanistan to Tanzania to Bangladesh. She started working out in medical logistics and eventually moved into general management for international charities. She also worked for the EU for a year, but she said that she realised that even when working for an organisation that controls the purse strings, the system designed to help people in crisis is fundamentally flawed, and there just wasn't the scope to do what was needed. So she moved back to the UK, started to deal with the burnout she'd experienced, and now lives in North Wales with her dog, working part-time, consulting for various humanitarian NGOs, running a lot of mountain miles and trying to figure out how to spend more time outdoors and less time in front of a computer. (laughs) That sounds familiar. Welcome to the (laughs) podcast, Tess. Thanks, Jen. Oh, oh, thank you. I've got so many questions to ask about resilience. And yeah, I kind of, this is an area where I just haven't really given it much thought. It's not a career that I've ever considered or yeah, know much about. So how did you get into this work? Um, I guess I kind of fell into it a little bit. I, all my life as a kid, I wanted to be a vet. I loved animals. That was sort of the path that I was on. Um, And then my parents moved out to Kenya when I was 18. Um, And I guess I, and we'd always been on holidays to East Africa, but I guess at that point when they moved, I realized that there was a lot more world out there. Um, And that, yeah, things in that world weren't necessarily fair or, um, there were just a lot of issues that I wanted to understand better and maybe help to address. And yeah, at the time, a good way into it seemed to be through working in logistics. Um, it seemed like a tangible skill that I could uh, that I could use. I wasn't a medic. I wasn't um, a kind of water and sanitation specialist. So yeah, finding a tangible way in um, was through logistics. So I got a kind of traineeship um working in the Congo I didn't speak any French I spoke basic Swahili um but I say no French I spoke school level French it wasn't enough um <laughs> no. but, you can ask where the library was, was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly so yeah that was kind of how I got into it um and then yeah slippery slope really I I then spent kind of uh nine years in um conflict zones essentially and uh, major refugee settings and yeah moved out of the logistics thing into program management and eventually working for a donor um for the eu humanitarian office um kind of searching a bit along the way for a role where i thought i could actually make a difference mm. in a misguided slightly uh, problematic way um but yeah, it. I've I learned a lot about the industry and about how flawed it is and how it's controlled by the interests of the governments who fund it and ultimately the interests of the um, businesses who are in the pockets of those governments who fund it. So, yeah, it wasn't. It didn't turn out to be kind of the um, the lovely, rewarding thing to do. Um, but yeah. It was at times super rewarding and really interesting. And I met some amazing people all over the world. Um, so it's not not that I've kind of come back to the UK with this, like, it was all awful. Mm. Um, but there's a bit of an element of that and a bit of an element of um, how could we make it better? And yeah, that all that really contributed to my burnout in the end, the, the sort of moral injury of realising that, the system isn't what it says on the tin it's not humanitarian assistance it's a hangover from colonial days I guess um, and part of a development system that yeah is just an idea that rich nations can give something to poor nations and that will fix everything oh 
Well, there's a lot to unpick there, but it sounds like you've been on such a journey. I mean, just going back yeah. to those first few um, postings that you had, like you said that you were working really in kind of refugees, with refugees or in conflict. Like, how was that in the first instance? Were you just felt like you were thrown in the deep end? Did you have a lot of preparation for dealing with that sort of area? Um. I guess there was an element of feeling like I was thrown in the deep end, but I was always, and I guess still am, someone who just sort of gets on with it and doesn't struggle in new situations. Um, So I just sort of adapted quite quickly. And that I guess that really ties into the whole idea of resilience and just being like, yeah, fine, no problem. Um, okay, I mean, let's start on resilience. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's one definition come up, but I'm gathering that that's probably not your final definition of what resilience is. Yeah. <laughs> what would your definition of resilience be if I asked you to pinpoint it now? Well, I guess it's taken me like a really long time to realise that it doesn't have to be that sort of toxic ideal almost. Um, I-, I spent years in the humanitarian sector yeah believing that I was resilient because I was tough and capable and could cope with all these hard things being thrown at me and these difficult situations difficult places and listening to people's really harrowing stories um and eventually I realized I wasn't that resilient because I couldn't cope with that um and I broke I wasn't just an elastic band I can just bounce back every time and went through this quite serious burnout which I'm yeah still recovering from I would say and just thought like wow this idea of resilience that we're told is like what we need to work in this sector just isn't a good thing um but I think now looking at it with a bit more perspective and hindsight and nuance um I think now that it's it's kind of the tools and capacities that you pick up along the way that you learn along the way that mean that you can recognize the challenges that are coming or that you're faced with now and find appropriate ways of like um, lessening the impact of those challenges on you. Um, so not just about plowing through, but about reacting appropriately. Um, and I guess like the big thing that for years I thought meant that I'm not resilient was because I quit the emergency work and came back to the UK um, because I couldn't cope and I really believe that and a part of me really still does and feels kind of like ashamed in a way that I couldn't cope with doing the work um, and that it broke me Um, but if I look at look at it through that kind of new definition that I've that I'm trying to see it as um, then I did see the challenge that the work was kind of breaking me down and I wasn't as effective anymore Um, and I wasn't okay Um, and I found a way of reducing the negative impact by getting out of it and shifting sideways and doing something different Um, and not that that just completely fixed it it's a whole the whole process Um, and I still describe myself as a recovering humanitarian (laughs) Um, and I guess yeah part of the recovery is really figuring out what it is that I need like what are my tools and capacities that give me the resilience to recognize challenges and deal with them um mm. and we also we in the humanitarian sector there's a, a whole kind of chapter of programming called resilience programming so like building resilience of the people affected by crisis um and i always thought that the way that was framed was really problematic as well because it was sort of like we can't deal with any of the underlying issues that you've got, but we're going to try and build your resilience so that next time you face a major crisis, it's not quite as bad. Um, and I think I linked it to that as well. And so I was like, okay, from a manage- it's a management tool. You're told you have to cope. You're told you have to be resilient. And then there's this programming that I'm really not quite sure about. So it all just became this very negative thing in my head. Um, so yeah really resisted the idea of resilience for a while but I have yeah tried really hard to reframe it um as part of this recovery from 
burnout in the last year. <laughs> I, I'm a recovering lawyer, so I resonate with a lot of what you were saying. And yeah, just, I imagine it's <laughs> I mean, what did that burnout look like for you? Was it physical and mental? Yeah, definitely both. Um, it was... It was at its worst when I was in Bangladesh um, and I was running a programme responding to the Rohingya refugee crisis, which was really high stress. Everything was an emergency. The whole system was overwhelmed, um, but it was also incredibly political. So the Bangladeshi government didn't want the refugees there. Myanmar government certainly didn't want them back. Um, and listening to people's really really harrowing stories the women in particular of what happened when they flee um it was yeah it was a lot and because the system just didn't work there's a lot of like really kind of industry specific rubbish that I won't go into in terms of why it didn't work in Bangladesh but basically you have a refugee set up and you have a conflict set up and Bangladesh wouldn't accept like the big players in in Bangladesh wouldn't accept it to be set up in either way. So it was this kind of mishmash of both. And it just didn't work and the aid wasn't getting to where it needed to be. And it was all because of kind of infighting between um, between UN agencies and governments and donors. And the, it was like the, the real aim had just been lost. And like the idea of actually supporting refugees was no longer the priority. It was more, the priority was more, who had more power and who was controlling the way the thing worked. So all of that just kind of contributed to this like overstress and what I now recognize as just kind of chronic cortisol overload. Um, I didn't, I, I became much less effective at work. I would just sometimes just work from home and not really get anything done. I just sort of sit there and stare at the computer all day. I was really, uh, really short temper with all my colleagues um, and we can laugh about it now with some of them but it wasn't good um, and I just sort of felt kind of numb I guess and eventually sort of realized that I wasn't okay sort of I wouldn't say that in Bangladesh I had the real understanding of where I was this is all sort of with hindsight I did take a break afterwards, but only a month to six weeks. Um, went to Nepal walking with my mum and my brother, which was lovely, and partly alone, which was probably very much needed. Um, and then I went to Afghanistan for a year, <laughs> which was not what I needed to do. Um, and it was only it, when I was in Afghanistan that I started to realise, actually, I'm not able to do things at the same level as I used to be able to I don't have the focus I don't have the um I don't have the drive I just don't love doing this work anymore and I don't have the energy to kind of stand up to people in meetings um when they're sort of you know, derailing things I don't have the energy I'm just like, oh, whatever fine we'll just do it that way um and so over the course of that year or over the course of the first six months that I was in Afghanistan, I realised that, yeah, this was all caused by burnout and I needed to deal with it. I was committed to a year, so I didn't actually just leave. But, um, yeah, and it was actually about six months into Afghanistan, I started running um, on a treadmill in a gym in a fairly horrible basement. Um, but, yeah, that's been, like, a big part of my recovery so I have yeah, that little gym in the echo compound in the cardboard so thanks for it. Oh, <laughs> glad that you found something to help. I suppose when I was going through kind of fairly similar that I, a lot of mine was more kind of physical like I just literally couldn't get up the stairs and out of bed and things. Mm. For a long time I was just thinking I'm not working hard enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not a good yeah. enough lawyer and I guess that kind of taps into that obsession with productivity especially in law when you're kind of doing timesheets and things like that I mean did it take quite a while to realize that there was something more going on for you definitely yeah that I really 
that sounds very familiar, that kind of, I'm just not working hard enough. I'm not trying hard enough. Um, I'm lazy. Um, and there was, it was always, yeah, the, the productivity thing, the fact that capitalism has leached into even the charity sector. Um, there was a badge of honor for sure around working 60 hour weeks. Yes. And I wasn't doing it anymore. And I guess and that, that taps into like resilience be. as well, doesn't it? Yeah, You're very resilient absolutely. because you can work all these hours. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I just didn't want to do that anymore. And I found myself kind of lying about how much work I had. I'm oh, so busy. I'm so busy. But actually, on a weekend, I wasn't. Um, because I didn't want to kind of admit that it wasn't my first priority anymore. That actually, I'd rather go and run on a treadmill for two hours. But it also kind of strikes me that these, <laughs> like where you were positioned, it wasn't like you could just shut the door at home and have your weekend like how much yeah. time off mentally and physically did were you having yeah it's a really all-consuming career um and sometimes I loved that I, I think back to I was in Nigeria and I often think of Nigeria as kind of like the, the high point when I was still really enjoying it and believed in what we were doing and we had a great team um and we really did actually like there were tangible outcomes from what we were doing. It was, yeah, it was good programming. Um, obviously not perfect, but um, but the whole, it was my whole life when I was in Nigeria. I was only there for five months, I think, but we rarely had a day off. Sometimes we'd get to go to Abuja for a weekend and go to a nice restaurant and go to the cinema, but then we'd go back again. Um, and when you were in in the kind of field locations yeah you lived with your colleagues you worked with the same people so you'd go home and you'd continue to talk about work and the only difference would be it would be over a beer maybe instead of a cup of coffee um so it was completely all-consuming and the time off you were still thinking about work but just maybe in a social situation um and it became my whole identity for so long and then when I started to realize that I disagreed with some of the kind of fundamental underpinnings of the sector that I was my work it was a bit of an existential crisis really like I hate the sector but I am my work do I hate myself um yeah it was a lot <laughs> mm. oh it sounds a lot and just going back to your the work that you were doing you mentioned um resilience programming and I just wondered what that was so what I was primarily working on was emergency um emergency response which I still kind of believe that there is of course a place for international NGOs and international donors to provide emergency responses in crisis affected countries but then trying to link that to the development work, which is much more problematic. Um, there's kind of a huge chasm between emergency and development. And in order to kind of bridge that gap, we were pushed into doing more and more resilient programming, which was essentially to build the capacities of crisis-affected communities such that they would be less affected the next time a crisis came along. Um, in a kind of natural disaster context, that works pretty well. Um, you can build flood, flood defences, you can build better buildings that are more earthquake resistant, but in the context of conflict, it's just, it's just a buzzword. Um, and it's kind of this idea of oh you better be resilient because actually we're not going to be able to help you next time we haven't got any money um and if we have got the money it probably won't really help you because it's not addressing the underlying issues because we don't have the capacity to do that the donors who fund us do have the capacity to do that but they instead choose to just put the money through us and do these piecemeal projects um and i yeah came to realize that the the humanitarian sector isn't really built on kind of activism or community organizing or social justice. It's just built on this kind of top-down program planning. Um, 
and relies on the power structures that exist rather than shifting the power. Um, so any building of resilience wasn't about shifting power. It was about just giving people the basic capacities to, to survive and to maybe get through whatever the next shock was that was coming. Um, so, yeah, it was a, maybe a, originally a good concept, concept in sort of natural, natural disaster um, framework that then got a bit, uh, it got co-opted by the whole sector and just didn't, didn't really do anything. Mm. And that kind of realisation that you came to, I'm guessing you're not alone. Like, I'm guessing most humanitarian workers go in for a very similar reason to you because of the type of work they want to do and the help that they want to kind of offer. But is this quite common that actually it's just not in reality like that or you're not able to do that work? Yeah, definitely. And I think... There's a, a huge number of people that I know and have spoken to who who very much see the the problems with the sector and who have experienced some level of kind of um, disillusionment or moral injury from seeing the realities. And there's a lot of talk and there's a lot of sort of small organisations being set up to try to change it, but it's just this huge... Um, this huge behemoth that just kind of keeps trundling along in the way that it is set up, the amount of money in the UN compared to the amount of money behind these little NGOs that are set up to challenge um, the status quo is, yeah, it's it's just not not a fair fight. Um, but sometimes I feel like there is hope. Um, I have a few good friends who are still kind of really, really trying sort of from the inside out um, to shape things and I think it's important to focus on kind of a country level or a um, yeah at least like a, a smaller piece than sort of I have this tendency to look at the big picture and sort of feel very defeated because if we can't solve everything then we can't solve anything um, but yeah if you're a bit more pragmatic than me and you can see okay let's take this bite-sized chunk in say Ethiopia maybe we can improve things there um, and make the aid system a bit more effective and accountable um, so yeah there's there are there are chinks of hope and good a lot of good people um, but I think also a lot of people who just feel very disillusioned and demotivated and is there no hope <laughs> down a bit of a dark one I should focus on the hope is there no hope for those um kind of the government and the higher level change do you feel like I suppose one thing that I was thinking was like if say the pandemic things change so quickly in terms of Mm. government and suddenly money was available and it kind of can we get hope from that that if it was in made in the interest that that would result yeah. in the change or is that never going to be in the right change it's a really good point I always forget about the the amount we saw that was possible with the pandemic um and yeah I guess that is hopeful things can happen um but I think somehow it's got to be made to be in their interest and I just don't know how that's possible um I think a lot a lot of crises at the moment um, are climate related. And so if we're able to push that forward um, and make that an actual priority, um, at least at the top of, top levels of the UN, I think there is now an understanding of the urgency. It's just then getting the donor governments on side. Yeah. And I think if that could be used as kind of the paradigm of the... That was quite a big if there, isn't it? and and just thinking of those people that you came into um contact with through your work it sounds like you were really on the front line for quite a lot of your um work as a humanitarian um in that sector like were there 
did you see resilience there? Were there things that you could learn? Um, as the things that really inspired you for the people that were in those crises and conflicts? Yeah, I think I met a lot of people who still had this amazing drive to want to change things and want to be successful, whatever, however they define success. Um, one of the most recent places I was was in Sudan and the refugee camp there um, where Ethiopians had come across the border. Um, and I was working with a group of kind of university age young people um, and they were, yeah, just hired them as part of my research team essentially um, because I spoke every language that was useful. Um, and just seeing the amount of... Um, commitment they still had to yeah we are going to get back into university wherever that might be um and if someone's life can be that derailed and they can still have a focus on their goals um I found that super inspiring and that's kind of a theme that I've yeah seen across a lot of places I've been and I think sometimes I have this um kind of inner conflict I guess about whether goals are a good thing because if you achieve the goals then where do you go next um and you get this kind of dopamine high and low and constant roller coaster um so maybe it's better to, to kind of be on a contentment level but actually I don't really believe that and that's partly because I've met these people and it's like that's what keeps you going um to have something to aim for you might have to change shift the goalposts a bit but to have a goal um, to kind of know where you want to go in life is super important. And you talked about like resilience instead of the ploughing through being more about kind of tools and capacity. And I just wondered if you had an idea of what those sort of tools would be. Yeah. So I guess drawing on different coping mechanisms um, and learning what those coping mechanisms are for you and having multiple coping mechanisms. So for quite a long time, I just shifted everything from work into running ultras. And that was my coping mechanism. But obviously you get injured and then... <laughs> You're kidding. I have no idea. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's why this podcast exists. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, and I've just had to realise that I I need more different things. And I think one of the one of the areas that I have realised is super important, and not just kind of through my own experience, but again through talking to people in refugee camps and um, also talking to friends that've gone through similar things. Um, of social connections and obviously there's been a lot of research around how important social connections are for our mental health but yeah it's it's really true um, and I think when I first was going through kind of really bad burnout I pulled away a lot from friends and just sort of hid a bit and that made it worse um, and I have a tendency to do that sometimes still. Um, I've also just recently moved to North Wales by myself and not really knowing anyone and very much realising that, yeah, you have to make the effort to make connections. Otherwise, life is not quite as easy. Um, so, yeah, that's a, a big part of it. And I think, yeah, drawing on what I've learned from people, uh, again, kind of going back to this group of students and the camp in Sudan um that was kind of what was getting them through it was having each other and having that network that they set up um they hadn't necessarily all known each other before they were in Sudan but they'd set up this network to find each other to kind of keep each other going and it was across several different refugee camps and yeah it was, it was pretty cool I think that's that's really interesting to hear because as I've kind of gone through talking to different guests on the podcast we kind of cover lots of ranges of topics but it's kind of from a very much 
like our socioeconomic position in the UK probably where we can eat well we can exercise and kind of those taking that to somebody in a refugee camp I mean it's just a completely different story of of where they can get their resilience from or keep kind of that motivation so yeah that social connection that sounds a really interesting one and I'm guessing also that was probably did you have much connection outside of your work when you were working in these humanitarian things I mean how much did you have breaks to come home how did that feel yeah my my whole social group were pretty much colleagues um and because I was away from home so much of the time it, it was hard to kind of keep in contact with the people back home um we got regular holidays but I tended to take those holidays with other people that I knew in the sector um and so I definitely didn't if I could kind of do it all again um I would definitely keep much better connections with home partly for the kind of social side of it but also just to keep myself grounded and I feel like I I lost a bit of a sense of place because I was moving so much and you know when you have to think of a fact about yourself at the beginning of a workshop or something mine is quite often I lived in 11 countries in 10 years and everyone's always like what that's ridiculous um and it is ridiculous and it's quite funny but it was also really not healthy um and definitely just yeah lost a sense of where I was meant to go back to um so yeah if I could do it all again that's something that I would definitely change is keep those keep those connections back to home Mm. And you talked a bit about that kind of identity that was wrapped up in your work. And I was just thinking as a kind of outsider, I see some kind of negative portrayals of humanitarian work. I'm thinking in like Oxfam in Haiti, we saw that on the news and these really big divisions of power and kind of almost touching on colonialism as again like I'm not educated in this area but I'm kind of thinking of my view I mean are these themes that you found working in that was it is it over negatively portrayed in the press and it's actually not that bad how did you end up viewing it I think yeah those are major problems and I think it's good that the press has picked up on things and highlighted them um there's of course another school of thought where it's sort of like it's not that bad and these are isolated incidents and um if we if we let that be the public's view then there won't be so much money coming and we already don't have enough money for the emergency work um but i don't think they're isolated incidents i think it's institutional um And I think the more people within the sector that realise it's institutional and don't kind of panic about their job security or their programme having to end after six months because there's no more funding, the more we realise that there are these really problematic power dynamics at play because the sector has barely changed since um, since its inception. And it's all these big white Western NGOs and UN agencies coming to the aid of um, the people in crisis in the global south. That's what needs to change. And that's what's perpetuating the kind of the idea of it being a bit colonial and also the idea that the people in senior management can get away with things um, that they really shouldn't. And there's a lot of good things being put in place. And I think as kind of my generation kind of age up to the senior management level, things are starting to change um, and safeguards are being put in place and things like Oxfam moving their headquarters to Nairobi is really cool. Um, but it's a really slow process. Yeah. And then you did, It was it kind of a step to sort of try and get more power like for yourself empower your 
itself into kind of those values that you moved to the EU. You said that you tried to go where it sounded like the decisions were being made. I mean, how did you yeah. find that? Did that not really make any difference? Yeah. So my thought process around that was I'd got this kind of dream job. I'd always wanted to be a team leader on an emergency team and just be able to like go as a first line of response to new emergencies. Um, and I did that and realized this is not where I can shape things. I'm still just delivering programs that I don't fully always agree with. And the UN is still able to boss me around. And I don't think we're getting the best value for the people who were supposed to be supporting. Um, so, okay, I'm going to go try and work for a donor, one that I think is quite principled. Um, in the EU humanitarian office have a reputation for being principled and emergency focused and um yeah wanting to actually do the right thing so took this job thinking i'll have more of a voice i'll have a louder voice i'll be able to advocate for the money to go in the right direction and shape how the un architecture looks in this particular country um and actually, it just didn't work like that. I ha I was able to speak out a bit more um, because, of course, the, the consequences weren't going to be that the UN stopped partnering with me. Um, and so we were able to have the conversation, but it just, things weren't really going to change. We had a a really interesting kind of in-depth look at why things weren't working in Afghanistan, why things weren't being coordinated properly. Um, but things never changed. Um, and I didn't really understand where the blockage was and kind of who, which organisation, which power dynamics, power holders, who was not letting things change um so yeah it just continued to be really frustrating um and also having to work for a very bureaucratic organization I always knew that would be the trade-off like having to do all the paperwork <laughs> <laughs> where um, were you living when you were working there were you in Europe and away from those kind of frontline areas that you had been working in um, so when I was like the EU, I was in Afghanistan. Oh, okay. Um, so no. <laughs> that, yeah, yeah. Did get a few more holidays. <laughs> <laughs> and then just so when you were in Afghanistan, that was the time when you just realised that I'm guessing that you couldn't carry on. I mean, what led to that decision? Was it a really hard decision to walk away? I mean, I know that you're still doing some work in it, but I mean, walking, yeah. away, walking away from that full-time job. Yeah, it was really hard. And I didn't know at all what I wanted to do instead. Um, and I told myself that I would take the summer off and I took three months um, and just literally did all the things that I loved and a lot of time outdoors, um, saw friends and tried not to think about what I was going to do next. And then kind of picked and took a job um, for HQ in Denmark, um, which didn't let me, it, it kind of wasn't, didn't go either way. So it didn't let me completely disconnect, but it also wasn't interesting enough for me to think that I, that, that there was any use in the job kind of thing. So it was, yeah, that, that wasn't the right decision. Um, and then COVID happened and with hindsight, that was probably the right thing for me at the time because it forced me to come back to the UK. Um, well, actually I was here on holiday and I got stuck. Um, <laughs> still here. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it just gave me the opportunity to slow down and not feel guilty about it. Um, and to do a bit less and the space to think um, and because everyone was in kind of the same boat I didn't feel guilty about not being super productive 
um, having a fast-paced job where I was running around like a headless chicken. Um, <laughs> yeah, I also, so, yeah, I, I suppose timing-wise, that was similar to me. But w- one thing that I found, I mean, and it was a different area, I was working with children in prison, with legal aid work, and then mm. I... I suffered the burnout too and (laughs) just kind of physically I just couldn't carry on so I left thinking Mm. oh two weeks and I'll be absolutely fine but I went to a different kind of office-based job and I kind of almost had a bit of a again like an existential crisis in the fact that I had been dealing with people's liberty I had you know real serious cases and suddenly I was kind of had nothing as remotely I mean like it was mostly about clothes and things like that (laughs) and it was a very much like I'd lost my purpose and I just wondered if you'd had something similar and how you coped with that I definitely felt that um and I think I still feel that and I'm trying to kind of learn that you don't there doesn't have to be particular meaning to what you're doing um, and finding purpose in other things. Um, and some of that, of course, is kind of thought related and that's quite a selfish pursuit. Um, that doesn't give quite the same feedback. Um, but I think a big part of how I try to frame it and how I try to kind of live my life is around kind of what, what am I, what's my belief system and what are my principles and just making sure that my life is kind of aligned with that. Um, so doing things with like local environmental groups, um, just kind of finding little bits of purpose in, in the day to day. Um, and yeah, stepping back from having that kind of all consuming career that you yeah that is it's rewarding but at the same time it's really draining um and disconnecting a bit from needing to have that purpose but yeah still very much working on it and it's really hard <laughs> oh okay I was hoping you'd give me all the answers here. <laughs> so what it sounds like kind of nature's been you mentioned it a few times as somewhere you're, you're going to think and recover and spend time and congratulations I think you've just passed your ML assessment <laughs> tell us a little bit about yeah what nature means to you and, and what you've got from that over the years yeah, I think it's about recognizing that there's kind of something something bigger maybe um and feeling a kind of connection to to place and to the environment um and feeling sort of at peace um and not having to be busy just being able to kind of be um I think that's a big part of it you can be in the moment and not sort of planning and not worrying about that last meeting that you were in and thinking about the next one and like what we're going to do when we run out of money at the end of this month. And um, it's just, it's very grounding um, to be outside and to have kind of mini adventures. And yeah, I think something that I want to try and do with my ML is yeah, give other people the opportunity to, to feel that. Um, and to realise that, yeah, there are places out there that aren't so far away that are pretty cool, and it's like it's adventurous to go there, but actually not scary and daunting. Um, because I get a lot from that, and I think other people can too. Um, I heard a snippet of a conversation on the radio earlier. I have no idea what they were talking about in the lead up to it, but they, someone was saying they were arguing the task about whether there should be a kind of luxury option on races. It was about marathons and ultras. Um, and one of them was saying, you don't need luxury because your concept of luxury just changes and all you actually need is a can of Coke and a chocolate bar or something. Um, and I was, it really annoyed me because I thought they missed the whole point. 
And the point isn't that you don't need the luxury. The point is that it strips away the need for anything except the basic needs. Um, and yeah, it's that connection with your kind of most basic self. You just need oxygen, food, water, and keep going. Yeah. Just annoyed me that they kind of missed the point. <laughs> Although I often think that about. while I've got like my watch and my trainers and kind yeah. of way overcomplicated yeah. and made it much more expensive than it needs to be. But yes, yeah. No, I like that feeling. And it's not just running that I get that from the kind of just being yeah. out cycling, fast packing, yeah, all those sorts of ones. Yeah. And so after that really positive note, I've got another question bringing it down. But sometimes like since I've got out of my area of Law, I guess that I I sometimes feel guilty about the people that I've left behind, even you know, even years later. And I just wondered, like, whether you still like you call yourself a recovering humanitarian, and is that one of the things that's on your mind? How do you deal with that? It yeah, it's definitely something that I think about for sure, and kind of the the kind of maladaptive part of me will surface and sort of say, if you'd been more able to cope, then maybe you could have helped these people. Um, but then there's also the sort of um, the more pragmatic part that says, actually, you're one person. You're prob- you probably weren't. You're not irreplaceable. Um, and I think that was actually just generally something I really had to come to learn. Um I used to not take holidays because I thought people couldn't cope without me. Um, obviously, they could. <laughs> I was not an um, essential cog in any machine. Um, and I think coming to realise that by the end of kind of Bangladesh and Afghanistan, I wasn't particularly effective. And the right thing for myself was also going to be therefore the right thing for anyone that I was working with or around um, taking my unaffected self out of the system. Um, I think that's probably a bit of a negative way of looking at it, but it helped me in a way to just sort of be like, pull yourself together. It's not that that deep. (laughs) Mm. And I think sometimes like going back to being in nature, that, the way that just nature just carries on the world the seasons come it just yeah. happens whether you're there or not yeah. sometimes helps me have that perspective that um yeah that's really interesting yeah to think that's about. Really nice and um was, was there any support when you were working in this job like there definitely wasn't as a lawyer and it was something that wasn't really talked about it was you know we had a very dark humor and we thought that meant that we were coping really well but now I'm out I'm thinking no that wasn't healthy and I just wondered whether like you did have any sort of support yeah it sounds really similar um and I think it was kind of a a management strategy just to kind of recruit people who you thought could cope um and it was always part of interviews and sort of what are your coping mechanisms and how do you deal with a high pressure workload and do you mind working 60 hour weeks sort of all of this and because there was just the realization the acceptance so I mean I asked these questions in interviews too as well as being asked them because I just bought into it because there was this realization that you didn't get any support there was you just had to get on with it um I remember there being a kind of surge in interest around um, mental health aid workers around the kind of the start of the Syria crisis or maybe a few years later. Um, And I think that was probably pushed by a lot of young Syrian aid workers, um, maybe Lebanese and Jordanian too, being kind of, forceful enough and outspoken enough to kind of say we need some support um and because it's kind of a new generation of aid workers um all quite young and obviously facing a really difficult 
time supporting their compatriots or supporting refugees um, when they'd been through a lot themselves. Um, and so people did kind of go to their program managers, program directors, and say, you need to put in the budget some uh, provisions for supporting us. Um, and so there was a lot more talk around it for a while. And some NGOs managed to get it in there in the countries where there were where there was a bit of extra budget, um, which was yeah not across the board. Um, but usually you build the perfect budget, send it off to the donor. They tell you to cut it by a third, and it's things like that that go because they don't change the targets; they just change the total amount that's available. Um, so yeah, it's. It's something that's talked about a lot more and um, kind of understood that what people are put through is not, um, it's not okay. We expect a lot from our team, um, but there's, there's not enough support at all. You just sort of have to get on with it. Um, and there was always, and I think still is in most cases, a sense that if you're not coping, just you shouldn't be in that role really sad Mm, that's really sad and kind of coming out the other side now like how do you feel your experiences changed you either negatively or positively I think I think it's made me appreciate a lot more that that it's okay to feel feelings to feel emotions and to to be kind of affected by the things that we saw and the people that we spoke to and the stories that we heard um I think years ago when I went into it I used to think I'm quite a detached person and never thought of that as a red flag and I thought that's part of who I am and I cope well and that's fine um and I think as a woman as well you feel you're expected to be emotional so you kind of double down on the I'm tough and I don't feel things um but I think this is yeah it's taught me that actually it's healthy and it's good and it's actually in some time some ways a positive thing to demonstrate that you have emotions um a friend of mine told me that she cried in in a refugee camp in Greece one time and she was she just thought oh god this is it now people are going to lose all respect for me and they're not going to want me to help anymore they're just going to think oh she's useless she's not going to be able to help um but actually it did quite the opposite and people were sort of saying to her we realized in that moment that you're human and we start to trust you and we thought okay we can sit down with her and see how she could potentially get us what we need um so wow what a lovely story (laughs) to kind yeah, of take with you mm. it reminded um, me of when I'd done a parole board hearing for a boy in prison that I'd represented since he was 16 and I'd seen him all the way through prison and he was getting out as a young adult and we'd kind of pretty much got the release decision and then when we got outside the room me and him were just crying and like hugging and um, assuming the parole board would be in there for ages discussing stuff yeah. but they just all came out and saw us and again <laughs> like I just like my first emotion was this is so unprofessional but actually yeah we're human and we don't need to be robots in our job do we and it's actually fine Mm. and a good thing so yeah and almost a necessary thing I think that we're absolutely yeah um that's the positive I've taken away from it um I think also going through burnout has it's fundamentally changed my personality um like I'm I used to be a lot more extroverted than I am now um, I used to just be a lot more confident, I think. And I say that I say those things and I sort of say it like it's a loss, but it's not necessarily. It's just I'm just different now. I'm no, I'm no less than I was before. I'm just different. But that is something to kind of yeah, something I've had to adapt to for the last few years. Sure. And I'm just wondering because I can't imagine having not worked in those environments that you've been in but like when I'm getting stressed about I don't know like 
computer not working or really minor things that kind of stress me out and we'd kind of say first world problems but I just wondered like with that background of what you've seen does it do you sometimes kind of think well I can't let this get to me because this is minor compared to those people that I met in the refugee camps or are you able to kind of detach from that as I say I'm just speculating because I've no idea what it's like having those memories I think there was yeah there was definitely a time when I felt kind of guilty for having small problems Mm. um and I think I've been able to sort of move past that a bit um and I'll use it as a as a sort of positive thing now um so kind of saying that things don't matter being able to look at things and think actually that's not a big deal doesn't matter but in a positive way rather than feeling kind of like my problems don't matter yes that kind of minimizing Mm. yeah yeah um but yeah it's, it's something that I've kind of through and thought about for sure and so what is in the future like is it kind of still very much work in progress see what happens because it definitely is for me but have you got a plan of of where you go from here because I just think you must have well I know that you've got so many skills and and it it took me a while to realize kind of it just felt like I'm well I'm not doing law so none of that was relevant but actually those skills that I had as a lawyer and doing the work I'm now putting into practice in other ways but it's taken me a long time to see that and I just wondered yeah, yeah what what are you up to next um it's definitely still kind of I'm still figuring out the actual plan um but in general uh yeah, doing less of the humanitarian consulting and more working in the outdoors somehow, um, using that ML and um, hopefully getting a couple of other qualifications to use. But then also I I spent, I think, a couple of years just really wanting to get away from the humanitarian sector and detach from it completely. But I think... I think I've got enough perspective and distance now that if there are things that I think I could do that could be actually useful, so whether that's just like a specific job, a specific consultancy where it's actually interesting or whether it's trying to kind of inspire friends and former colleagues to um, to think a bit critically about it and to try and have those shape those conversations a bit around how it should look and what the potential for change is. Um, I think I now have enough perspective and energy to, yeah, to re-engage a little bit around that. So yeah, dragging that in as well. Um, I was talking to my brother actually the other day about sort of what, yeah, careers and, you know, why, why we all think we have to go down with one, career path and that's a chosen thing forever um and actually it's much more rewarding and much more much healthier and more balanced to just do kind of little bits of different things um and be a kind of more multifaceted human so I think that's Oh, I love it. Really. If people ask, what, 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 what do I do? And I'm completely stumped and say, oh, a bit of this, yeah. bit of that. Then I'm just going to say, I'm a multifaceted human. <laughs> I also picked up having a portfolio career, which I think means you have quite a few different income streams. Yes, so I'm like using that, that as well. <laughs> but yes, it's yeah. definitely, again, I suppose that comes back to identity as well. Is that It's very easy to kind of say in one word what you do when you have this. Yeah certain careers whereas now I can't yeah. say it in one word <laughs> definitely yeah and I I really I put a lot of value on having that identity for so many years and like was quite proud of it um but yeah realizing that it wasn't wasn't a good thing in the end mm. yeah definitely don't want to transfer identity onto something else some other one big thing that I could then yeah yeah Oh, thank you so much for sharing your story. It's been really interesting to hear about resilience from your side and those people that you supported as well in your work. So thank you so much for that. Thank you, Jen. It's been really, 
great to talk to you. It's um, flown by. Waffling <laughs> <laughs> on about. <laughs> I could talk about it for hours. Uh, well, I just find it really interesting. The whole point of this podcast was to get different perspectives, and I feel like you had such a valuable perspective, and yeah, I've learned so much from it. So thank you, Tess, for sharing that. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Resilience Rising podcast. If you have enjoyed this episode, please do help people find us by hitting subscribe, leaving a review or sharing us with others. Thank you so much and see you next time on the Resilience Rising podcast.